Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. Uh, Luke, chapter 12. This morning, we're going to uh, consider, uh, Lord willing, verses 1 through 12. So Luke, chapter 12, uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 12. This is the very Word of God. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another... Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Well, uh, before we unpack this section together, let's pray. Our Father, you know uh, the circumstances of all of our lives. You know what this summer season has been for us, whether it has been a a time of walking closely with you and rejoicing, or whether it's been a time when we have felt far from you, uh, a time when we have not uh, redeemed the time or improved the time. And Lord, we just pray that this morning, whether we have had a good summer or not, we just pray that this morning will be a morning bathed in grace and love where you will forgive us for our sin, where you will draw us close to yourself, where you will transform us from one degree of glory to the next, uh, more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, for those who are traveling today, we pray that you will be with them, draw them close to your heart. For those who would like to be here but are not able to be because of health, we just pray, Lord, that you'll strengthen their bodies and Do that very special work in their hearts. Help them to know that you are with them, that you love them, and that as weak and as frail and as scared as some may be, help them to know that they can be secure in your hand, that you are their rock, that you are their strength. Lord, we would ask this morning that you would open your word. There are many things in this text that uh, go beyond our ability to comprehend, and so we just ask that you will enlarge our capacity for understanding. But even more than understanding, we ask for open hearts, receptive and good hearts, 
that will receive the seed of your word and that will produce a harvest of righteousness by the supernatural power of your spirit at work in us. Be with us, we pray, Lord. We, we desire to know you truly, and we ask that you will help us to do so. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this, uh, this last week, our family was up at uh, Muskoka Bible Conference and having a wonderful time uh, up there. And one of the things that I, I really appreciate, and I, and I must say this, I, I really truly appreciate with all of my heart your willingness as a congregation uh, to give me the freedom to serve the Lord in other areas besides just in these walls here. Uh, that's something extraordinarily uh, important and meaningful for me, uh, something that I don't take lightly, something that I don't take for granted. Uh, but the opportunity to teach overseas, the opportunity to uh, you know, lecture at the schools, the opportunity to uh, speak at Bible conferences and camps, uh, it's, it's a real privilege and an honor for me. And it is part of the wider kingdom work that you are involved in. Uh, when you allow me to do those things, you are playing your part in facilitating preaching and teaching for the kingdom of God in this province and around the world. And so your prayer support and your encouragement is really very meaningful for me. And so I just wanted to say that I, I, I thank you very much. And it's something that I don't just assume upon. Uh, not every church would be as generous and as kind and as supportive. Uh, and I also need to say that uh, tomorrow uh, evening, and this is this is true, uh, I can't be here tomorrow to help carry around metal. Um, and I feel badly about that. Uh, in fact, that's actually the only reason they needed to make the announcement, because it was they only needed me. You know, I was going to do it myself. It was no problem. But now that I can't be there, we need multiple people... You know, to fill in, to carry the stuff that I was going to take single-handedly. So I do apologize for that, um, although actually kind of relieved, so <laughs> it's fantastic. And you should all turn out to carry heavy stuff, and I'll be thinking about you, uh, possibly, you know, at, at that time. All right, well, let's, let's take a look at this passage here, Luke 12, uh, 1 through 12. A crowd of many thousands had gathered together. Now, this is something actually very interesting, because one of the one of the mantras of church growth wisdom, particularly in the 1980s and 1990s, and we actually have very little, if we don't have a historical perspective, a lot of us don't realize how much the methodology and philosophy of ministry shifted in the 80s and 90s towards sort of a, a seeker-sensitive model. And everything became about counting numbers and church growth. And not in every single church. But there was just such an attraction to this model of offering church for non-believers. Uh, let's, let's orchestrate all of our services around what people who don't know Jesus are going to like. So that they'll come and hopefully become saved. And this is just washed over you know, churches and across the North, and the North American church landscape. Thankfully, uh, not all the way around the world in many cases. And the, the idea there was you bring people in to hear about their felt needs. So people have certain feelings. They, they have certain desires. There's, they identify their own needs. And then we do what we can to reach them. We do what we can to uh, tell them about how they can get help in the areas they already want help in. 
Now, to do that effectively, we need to then minimize talking about things that no one wants to hear about. Because we want everyone to feel welcome. And the whole the whole structure of the service literally was designed so that people would leave feeling good about themselves. That's what we want. We want people to leave feeling good about themselves. Now, that is a sub-biblical goal. The goal of the Word of God is to get people to leave feeling appropriately to their position with God. And so the last thing you want is people leaving feeling good about themselves if they have nothing to feel good about in relationship to God. So sometimes you want people leaving in tears, mourning. Sometimes you want people leaving broken. Sometimes you want people leaving sad. Sometimes you want people leaving angry, depending on the injustice of what the text is addressing. So to, to try to cultivate a particular emotional dis- response and disposition was always contrary to the word of God. If you read the Gospels, Jesus has no interest whatsoever in always making everyone leave his presence feeling good. It is not his goal. So here you have a crowd of many thousands of people. And Jesus does not say things like, you know what, come and follow me because I'm the secret to success at work. He does not say, come and follow me because I'm the secret to a healthy, you know, I'm the secret to healthy self-esteem. Or you want to be self-actualized? I'm your man. I'll help you get there. In fact, he starts out, the very first thing he says to this crowd of many thousands of people, he says, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So here's this enormous crowd. And the very first thing Jesus says to them is, hey, you better make sure you're not hypocrites. That is exactly the opposite approach that we were taught in the 1980s and 90s. Uh, We were supposed to say, come on in, come on in. We will say nothing that challenges you. We will say nothing that makes you feel bad. We will say nothing that makes it seem like you might be a sinner. I'm okay. You're okay. God's okay. We're all okay together. And that's how we're going to do, you know, following Jesus. Jesus has this huge crowd and he just says, listen, I got to tell you something. You guys better make sure you're not all hypocrites. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Be on your guard against hypocrisy. Of course, um, I know absolutely nothing about baking, but I know enough about baking to read books about baking or biblical commentaries where they mention baking. And uh, I learned something. Did you know that yeast, this is shocking for many of you, yeast like works through the dough. <laughs> Did you know that? It's kind of a, one of those pervasive things. It's one of those all-transforming things. And so if you don't put yeast in, it actually really dramatically affects the product, all right? Uh, and if you do put yeast in, then it works its way all through you know, the dough, and it causes quite some significant transformations uh, in there. And so what Jesus is saying is here is, listen, the yeast of the Pharisees, the yeast of the religious people, the yeast of the type of people who like to come en masse in the thousands to hear me is hypocrisy. And it's subtle, it's small, but it totally works through every inch of your life and it totally transforms you. Hypocrisy can never be one segmented part of your life. It works through all that you are. And so Jesus says, you better be careful. You better make sure 
that you have not sort of sucked in some of this yeast, some of this hypocrisy. Because if you have, this is the most frightening thing about hypocrisy. Oftentimes, the hypocrite is not self-consciously in sort of insincere in their hypocrisy. In other words, there are some people who live like the devil, have no interest in Jesus, but in religious circles will pretend that they do. And they know perfectly well they're being hypocritical. Okay? They know perfectly well they're adopting a, a pseudo-persona. They know that. But those people are very few and far between. Most hypocrites are the last to know that they're hypocrites. Because they have put on a mask, they've interwoven this sort of deceptive character so thoroughly into the fabric of their life that they have deceived themselves more than anyone else. So that if you talk to the Pharisees, none of the Pharisees would have said, yeah, you know, we really don't care about the law of God. We're just going along with it to impress other people. They all seriously believe that they were fully in their heart committed to God. And yet they were totally hypocrites, not because they were, you know, insincere. They were very sincere, but they were hypocrites because their hearts were just never right with God. The way they were trying to approach God was uh, through sort of their own, their own standard of righteousness, not accepting forgiveness and mercy and grace. And so Jesus says, you have to be very careful about this. Do not be hypocrites. He says that to the people who gather to hear him. And so as we gather to hear the word of the Lord this morning, it is the same words that Jesus spoke to that crowd. It is just as applicable to us. We need to be on our guard against hypocrisy. Now, why do you need to be on guard? You need to be on guard because it's a normal human religious disposition. This is common. You know, this is sort of our sin nature gravitates towards this. And it's very subtle, so we just need to all be very careful. So let's all just take a moment to hear the word of the Lord and to make sure that we are being on guard against hypocrisy. It's not just something that affects other people. It's something which is a danger for every single one of us who listen to the words of the Lord. So be on guard against it. And realize this. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. And what Jesus is saying is this. All of your hypocrisy, you can fool everyone, and you can even fool yourself, but you can't fool God. You just can't. He knows every single thing about you. He knows you perfectly. He knows you intimately. He knows everything about you that you have forgotten. He knows everything about you that you have rationalized away and justified. He knows everything that you've done and not just what you've done. And this is where hypocrisy sort of comes in. He knows not only what you've done, he actually knows why you've done it. He weighs the motivation of your heart. He knows what was done As Jesus warns in Matthew chapter 6, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before people to be seen by them. And so Jesus knows every single time that I have ever spoken anywhere where suddenly the goal is, I really hope people like me or are impressed by me. He knows every single time I have opened the word of God where I have been as much or more concerned about my reputation 
than I have been about his glory. He knows everything. And, and, and people listening might not. They just might hear me preach and they have no idea what's going on in my heart. They have no idea how concerned I am about myself or about the Lord or about them or anything. And, and so we can do all kinds of religious things. We can do all kinds of good things that on the outside, it looks so good, but the Lord doesn't care about what we're doing on the outside. He cares about why we're doing it. He looks deep into our heart. And there's coming a day when what you've whispered, these are all just sort of metaphor, these are all just sort of pictures and analogies. What, what you've whispered, in other words, what you've tried to keep really, 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 really quiet is going to be shouted from on top of the roofs. And, and this is like public broadcasting in the first century. Right today, you know, Jesus, you know, you know, the things that you've tried to keep quiet, you know, it's going to go viral. You know, everyone in the world's going to hear about it. Everyone in the world's going to know about it. Everything that you've done in the dark is going to be exposed to the light. Everything that you've whispered is going to be shouted. Whatever you thought you could keep down and hypocritically smuggled away, it's going to be revealed on the day of judgment. You are not going to get away with anything. And so, because of that, you better be careful now. There is no hypocrisy that fools the Lord. He doesn't look at the mask. He looks at the reality underneath. And so be very, very careful. Be on your guard against hypocrisy. Everything about you is known and will be shown. Now, because of that, verse 4, because hypocrisy will be exposed, we need to worry about the final judgment. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. Now, this is one of those just absolutely beautiful things that Jesus says. Because it is so profoundly absurd unless it is true. Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body. Those are the people I'm afraid of. You know, like, I don't know about you. Those are, those are exactly the people that I'm afraid of. The people who can kill me. I'm worried about them. You know, and so this is like the not, the most natural of all human fears. We are afraid of death. I don't want people to kill me. And so if there's any group in the world that I'm going to be afraid of, it is the people who can kill me. And Jesus says, don't be afraid of those people. In other words, he's saying the single greatest group of people that you should fear naturally are people that you don't need to fear. If you don't need to fear the people who can kill you, then you have nothing to fear in this world, period. If you don't need to fear physical death, then you have nothing to fear at all in this world. Do not be afraid of those who can kill you. Now, this can only be because we have already died in Christ. That when we come to Christ, we die. We pick up our cross daily. Paul says, I die daily. The old person is dead. The new person in union with Christ is already raised. The old nature is gone. This heart of stone is plucked out. In the gospel, the old you has died. And you are already part of a new creation. And so we've died. We've already made that decision. I am dead in Christ. And physical death, now listen, this is something we don't like to talk about in our society, but physical death is inevitable. For all of us. And, and we can, we can try to just somehow convince ourselves that I will be the exception. Somehow for me, you know, for, not for anyone else, but for me, if I just, if I just eat enough seaweed, 
then then that will have the nutrition to carry me through until I don't know, like talking about six thousand years old. Because seaweed is powerful stuff. You know, it's one of those superfoods or whatever. There is no superfood. There is no diet that is going to allow you to live all of those centuries that you may want to live. There is no exercise program that is going to allow you to live to be 690 years old. It's not going to happen. And so we seem to accept this. We are going to die. Our, our death is inevitable. So why not? So you don't need to fear the people who can kill your body because it's not like if they don't kill you, you're going to live forever in this world. You are going to die. So just come to terms with that. Like come to terms with your mortality. There's no point evading it. There's no point dwelling on it all the time either. There's no point being morbid, but you are going to die. Just just accept it. And if you've already died in Christ, then your physical death is a time when you pass into the presence of the Lord. And so even our physical death is swallowed up in the victory of Jesus. But not only is that the case, but what Jesus says is, listen, your, your physical death is inevitable. You will die. But that's not what you need to worry about. There is a greater death than the death of the body. And that's the death that you need to worry about. I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus repeats himself. Because he's driving home emphatically that you need to make sure you fear God. Fear him who has the power and the authority. That is, he has the right. He is the one who in justice determines what will happen to your soul after your body is dead. So don't don't worry about those who, who can kill your body. And one of the glorious things about church history is that we have the witness of all kinds of people who have literally gone to their death not afraid of physical death. They have lived and died this truth of not being afraid of those who can kill the body. You know, think of you know, William Tyndale, great uh, Bible translator who going to his death, being burned at the stake. All he does is his last words. He he cries out in prayer to God, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And he's burned to death for translating the word of God into a language that people could read. There's someone who decided to fear God, not to fear those who could kill the body. You could multiply, you know, Tyndale's sort of witness millions of times, literally, There have been millions of our brothers and sisters who have sealed their testimony with their shed blood because they feared God and not man. How liberating is that? To live in a world where the worst that people can do to you is nothing that you need to fear because God is infinitely greater. So don't fear them. But there is someone Jesus says. Now this isn't, see there's some people who want to sort of say Jesus, you know, grace and mercy and all this, that's what Jesus is all about and and the Old Testament God, he gets pretty angry, and he, there's a lot of wrath and plagues and judgment and pestilence and all the rest. But but God's a lot nicer now that we have Jesus. And, you know, and even the, the Apostle Paul, he gets a little bit upset about things. He has some bad days. But, you know, Jesus, we'll just, we'll just listen to Jesus. Jesus is just kind and meek and nice. These are the words of Jesus. In fact, Jesus 
speaks more about hell than any other person in the scriptures. We need to take this very seriously. Now, you also know, if you've been here, I have been preaching through the gospel of Luke. Started in Luke chapter 1, verse 1. We have not skipped a verse all the way through so far until Luke 12, 1 through 12. So I am not cherry-picking a message about hell. Right? I didn't decide I'm going to come in here and preach about hell. But Jesus obviously felt that a crowd of thousands of people needed to hear about it. Because that's what he talks about. Now, I think in our churches we have done, we've, we've made sort of two errors when it's come to how we approach the doctrine of hell. The one, and this would be sort of the mainstream, we have simply and absolutely in every way ignored it. We simply will not talk about it. It will never, ever be mentioned, ever. Seriously, you, you can go to churches for decades. You'll never, you'll never hear hell mentioned. It's just, it's just, we just sweep it under the rug. We just pretend it's not there. Or, and I think that's actually a pendulum swing from a previous generation or two where real preaching was pounding on the pulpit, screaming about hellfire and brimstone every week. And it wasn't preaching unless that's what you had, right? So, you know, well, that's clearly unbalanced and slightly deranged. So let's just never talk about it ever again. And of course, well, you don't, you don't become more biblical by just, you know, jettisoning, jettisoning what is actually taught in the text because people have abused it. So what we need to do, or what I, at least I think we need to do, is we need to, to be faithful to the word of God and deal with the text that we have. And so when Jesus tells us that we need to fear him who has the authority to throw us into hell, we need to spend a little bit of time considering what it means to fear him who has the authority to throw us into hell. Right? So, so not yelling about it and screaming about it and raving about it every week, but also not neglecting it. When Jesus speaks about it, we're not going to be wiser than he is when it comes to how we should approach these things. Now, if I was in a different context, so if I was sort of at a place where I was talking to a number of people, uh, sort of in a, in a non-Christian context, then there are a lot of things that I would say about hell in terms of helping them understand the doctrine and also in terms of a philosophical defense of it. Okay. I'm not going to go through most of that material that I, I would go through in that particular context this morning. Because here, our stated goal is to open up the scriptures on Sunday mornings and to understand what the word of God says. So I'm going to kind of just dispense a lot of the the sort of philosophical defense to say this. First, interestingly enough, the scriptures, that is God's revelation, God's special word, never feels the need to defend the doctrine. It just doesn't. It just tells you it. It, it, it assumes it's true, and it tells you about it. But there is no philosophical defense of the doctrine in the scripture. It is assumed that hell is real. It is assumed that there is an, that there is an eternal state. There is a heaven, and there is a hell. It assumes that those who do not have saving faith in Jesus Christ will be separated from the presence of God for all of eternity and will bear the punishment of their own sin because they have rejected the vicarious punishment of their sin that Jesus has provided in his atonement. That is assumed in scripture. It is never defended. It is never philosophically justified. It is simply presented as revealed truth. The reason for this 
is because the Bible clearly teaches that God is perfectly just. God is the standard of righteousness. God is the standard of rightness. Whatever he does is by definition right and pure and good. And so if God has the authority to punish sinners who are completely unrepentant and who persist in their rebellion against him, if God has the authority to punish them in hell, the theological context of scripture is that that is perfectly within God's right and it is the right thing to do. Now hear that. If you track carefully through the revelation of God, then hell, by definition, is right and just and fair. Because the judge of all the earth will do what is right. The judge of all the earth does not punish people more harshly than their sins and their crime deserves. And so the very fact that God sees hell as the appropriate eternal destination for those who persist in rebellion and reject his son by definition shows us that it is the right and fair and just punishment for sin the reason why we have such a hard time with this is because our view of god is too small and our view of ourselves is too big we just cannot see ourselves as being that bad. Which, interestingly enough, is proof that we are. Because we just don't think we're really all that bad. And we don't. We just don't think it's fair. We don't think it's right. Why? Because I don't deserve that. Sinners don't deserve that. People don't deserve that. Why would you think that? God seems to think they do deserve that. So our problem is that we just simply do not comprehend the infinite holiness and righteousness of God. And we also really, none of us, have any idea how black and dark sin actually is. We, every single one of us, have a very, very candy-coated view of sin and a diminished view of God. So one of the ways to help understand how awful sin is is to work biblically. We do it backwards. We try to figure out, well... We look at hell and we say, well, it's too severe. We're not that bad. But the Bible calls us to actually reflect on eternal punishment and to realize this. Eternal punishment actually is a lens through which you can understand how sinful you are. Because it is what you deserve. Because it is what God himself, the the righteous judge, has decreed. And in the end... In heaven and in hell, justice will be done, and justice will be seen to be done, and it will be acknowledged by all to have been done, even if it's acknowledged grudgingly. Uh, There will be no eternal defiance of the rightness of the judge's decree. God will do what is right. Now, there's lots more that I would say. Actually, I think that in our evangelical churches, uh, we have presented a, a very real caricature of both heaven and hell. I believe that we have, we have taken things that are, are fairly obviously symbolic and we have literalized them. Uh, and that's a discussion for another day. 
So I think that our, our, our understanding of the eternal state has been very cartoonish, actually, uh, rather than allowing the scripture to really inform uh, what we think. However, heaven and hell are both very real, and you are to fear him, Jesus says, who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So those would be those would be two very important things to reflect on, two very sobering things. Are you on guard against hypocrisy? And do you fear God? Do you fear him who has this authority? Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet not one of them is forgotten by God? Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. That, that phrase in verse 7b falls like a bombshell into the context. Don't be afraid. What? <laughs> what were we just talking about? <laughs> this is one of those horrible moments where you think, like, did I just sort of like let my mind wander and now like the, the, the speaker has just moved on to something totally unrelated and I've totally missed the context here? Like, You've just told me to be afraid. You've just told me the most fearful thing imaginable, that there is an eternal, endless second death. You've told me to fear God. You've told me to fear God. And now you're telling me not to be afraid. What on earth is going on here? So am I, am I supposed to be afraid or not? This is one of the amazing things. This is one of those, those things about the justice of God and, and eternal punishment. You only need to fear God if you don't fear God. There is nothing to be afraid. The, the, the endless second death, as much as physical death is inevitable, spiritual death is not. And so if we take God seriously, if we revere God, if we come to God in humility and faith, if we turn away from our rebellion, then there is salvation. There, there is a there is a hell to be shunned, but there is also a heaven to be gained. And so this God who we are to fear, this righteous, austere, perfect judge, is also a gracious and a compassionate and a merciful and a loving father who cares even about sparrows. And you are worth a lot more than them. Sorry, people, for the ethical treatment of animals. It's just the way it is in God's created order. You are worth more than animals and birds. You are. The Father has sent his Son to die for you. And so receive Christ. Humble yourself. Recognize the the eternal things that are at stake. And and stand at the foot of the cross and know that as much as you actually deserve hell, and as much as if you sort of contemplate the cry, the punishment that fits my life before God is an eternity in hell, stand at the foot of the cross and recognize that the only, the only thing that would actually enable you to avoid hell and enter into eternal life is that suffering death of God's most beloved, treasured son, Jesus, dying for you. The son had to die in order for me to be saved. 
I tell you, that shows me an awful lot more about my sin than even contemplating hell. The cost of me not going to hell could be nothing less than the infinite value of the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, dying in my place, bearing my punishment for my sins in his body on the tree, bearing the wrath of God in those hours of darkness, bearing hell for me is what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And because he is, has borne our punishment, if, if we are united with him, we've already died. Our sins have actually been paid for. That is, he has been punished for us. Christus prome, Christ for me. He's taken my sin, my shame, my punishment, my death, my hell upon himself. And if my faith and trust is in him, then I am liberated and free and will live forevermore. I have nothing to fear. I don't have to fear my physical death. I don't have to fear a spiritual death. I have nothing to fear because I am united with Jesus Christ and his life triumphs death. Heaven triumphs over hell for every child of God. That is an incredible thing. And so Jesus says, well, don't be afraid. Fear him, fear him, fear him. Don't be afraid. Your judge is your father. He loves you. Fear him if you're not in Christ. Be afraid of God. It is a dreadful thing, we are told. It is an awful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's New Testament scripture, not old. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But if you are in Christ, those hands have already been pierced. Those hands have already shed their blood for you. So you have nothing to fear. Now, this should be an amazing thing, though, as you contemplate the grace and the love and the compassion of God. He loves us. Sometimes I think we, we think, you know, you know, John three sixteen. the amazing thing about God is that he loves so many people. That's not hard. Actually, loving lots of people is hard. Let's be honest. People aren't that lovable. But, you know, it's not just that God loves lots of people. The point in Scripture, the thing that people that, that, that the biblical writers marvel of, that the Holy Spirit causes them to marvel about, is not, look, God loves an enormous number of people. Oh, it's, it's a quantify, it's a quantitative love. It, it, it's, all, it's impressive because it's numeric. What always boggles people's minds and astounds them and causes them to worship in Scripture isn't that God loves so many people, it's that he loves those kind of people. Those people who are so wicked. Those people who are so infinitely below him, who cherish and delight in their darkness and their filth, who, who persist in hard-hearted rebellion against him, who, who shake their, their puny fist in his face all of the time. God loves them. The marvel is that he loves so many of us. The marvel is that he loves any of us who are this bad. And how much does he love us? He loves us so much that his son dies on a cross for us. That's the extent of his love. Not for so many people, but for it's a, it's a qualitative love. He loves people who deserve hell, who in their rebellion deserve endless second death. He loves you. Don't be afraid. He knows every detail about you. He even knows the number of hairs on your head. I used to be more powerfully impressed by that before I started balding. But uh, the, the point still stands, you know, that, that God knows every detail about us. He knows everything about us. So why be a hypocrite? Why, why 
engage in religious hypocritical play. He already knows you intimately in every way. He knows everything about you, and it was for you. The real you, not the not the souped-up, masked you, not the hypocritical you. It was the real you, transparent and known through and through, that his son shed his blood for on the cross so that you would have nothing to worry about. So how... How can we be safe? Verse 8, I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. To publicly acknowledge uh, refers to committing yourself to something with a promise or oath or confession. And so this is not lip service to Jesus. This is wholehearted commitment covenant with him if you will do that if not just with your lips but with your whole life with all of your heart with all that you are if you will publicly confess and live out for jesus then jesus will not be ashamed to acknowledge you before the angels of god now what this means is this if you are truly a follower of jesus christ if you have truly committed your heart and life to him there is coming a day When Jesus will not be ashamed in heaven itself to put his arm around you and walk you right up to to the archangels, right up before the throne of God himself and say, no, Michael, Gabriel, come meet this guy. This is my friend. This is my brother. This is my sister. This is someone that I delighted. I'm glad they're here. I, I want them here with me forever and ever. So, so take them around, introduce them to some people, uh, because I am proud to know them. They were faithful to me. They, they received me. They acknowledged me. They lived for me down there in that sin-cursed, broken world. They did, they, they did all that they could to honor me, always resting on my grace and the Spirit. And now they've died. Or maybe in heaven they say, and now they've really begun to live. Now they're here. And they're with me. But if you do, if you disown Jesus before others, you will be disowned before the ages of God. And all that means is that you will not belong in glory. You will not be welcomed there. It just won't be your home. And if your home is not in glory with God, then your home will be in hell, the eternal second death. Fear him who makes that decision. Fear him who has that authority. Verse 10 and 11 then sort of transitions to how the Holy Spirit will guide us. The the Spirit will give us what we need to say. And then this is very controversial or difficult to interpret. What do we mean by the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And there are are legions of options. I mean, there's probably only two or three good ones. But there are all kinds of different interpretations of this. Uh, It's a little bit, it's made a little bit more difficult here because Luke's context is different from Matthew's context slightly. And so we try try to figure out in Matthew, is Luke saying the same thing? What does it mean to blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and all the rest? The truth is, I'm not 100% sure. I am fairly confident of this. If blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is something that you are concerned that you have committed, you haven't. Because it speaks of someone whose heart is so hard, who's rejected the Lord so thoroughly. Matthew's context, I think, is helpful, where it's they see the work of the Holy Spirit and they say, that's Satan himself. 
if you have rejected God so thoroughly that you believe that what God does is what Satan does, then there's no repentance. I mean, you won't repent, and so there's no forgiveness. But even if you curse Jesus, you can be saved. Even if you blaspheme the Son of Man, you may be saved. Because there are lots of people who have cursed Jesus before the Holy Spirit opened their hearts and minds to know and understand him. The Apostle Paul was one. He he was someone who cursed Jesus. Probably the language of Peter, when Peter calls down curses on himself, probably we're supposed to interpret that really as Jesus, as, as Peter calling down curses upon himself and Jesus. Damning Jesus. And yet restored. Why? Because there is so much grace and love in the, in the heart of God that really no matter how you have treated him, if you will repent, no matter what you've done, no matter how long you've persisted in doing it, there is salvation for every single person who will humble themselves, pray, and receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So don't fight off the Holy Spirit. Don't push him away. One of his jobs, according to Jesus, is to convict the world in terms of unrighteousness. That is, to show people that they are unrighteous so that they can see who they are before God and be saved. I trust that many of you know this great Jesus. I trust that many of you fear God. Many of you are acknowledging Jesus, not just with your lips, but with your whole life. And I know that many of you have discovered, isn't this a beautiful thing? Haven't, isn't it true that, that the longer you walk with Jesus, you discover that the best thing about being a Christian isn't that you don't have to go to hell. Far greater than that reality is the positive reality of knowing God. That he calls you into this life-transforming, life-giving relationship. Far better than shunning hell is gaining heaven. Far better than shunning hell is gaining Jesus. So much better. The positive is so much better than the negative. Many of you have experienced that. Jesus spoke to a crowd of many thousands, and, and he didn't take anything for granted, and so neither will I. We're going to take just a couple minutes as individuals, and I'm just going to ask that, that you pray. And maybe, maybe truthfully, you, you don't know the Lord. And, and maybe there's some religious hypocrisy there. Maybe, maybe the Spirit is striving in your heart saying, come on, stop playing games. Let, it's time to get serious about Jesus. And so if that's you, you need to pray. Ask, ask Jesus to forgive you. Ask Jesus to draw you close and to give you a new heart. And if you truly know the Lord as I know and trust that many of you do, then, then rejoice in that. Consider again what he has saved you from and what you deserved. And also, probably for, probably for all of us, there are, there are friends and family that we can immediately think of who are walking in very real danger, who are not fearing God. And take a moment to pray for them too, that the Lord's Spirit will be at work in their hearts. So let's just, let's just take a moment to, to respond, to pray, and then In just a little while, I'll lead us in prayer.
Our Father, our sin is so much worse than we can imagine. And your love is so much greater than we can imagine. We thank you that your love is greater than our sin. We thank you that the atoning power of the blood of Christ is more powerful than the darkest stain of our heart. And Lord, we ask that you will give us this healthy fear of you, this reverence for you. Help us to realize that in walking with you and in fearing you, we have nothing else to be afraid of, nothing to fear at all. Lord, help us to see what Christ has done for us and to receive it. If there are any here this morning who really, truly don't know you, we pray that your spirit will open their hearts even now. They can find new life through your power and your word. Father, for those who know you, we rejoice and we praise you for eternal life. And Lord, we also offer to you a prayer of intercession for those who we love who do not know you. Lord, we beg you and plead with you, open their hearts. Do whatever it takes in their life to get them to consider you, to see who they are, to see who you are, and to acknowledge their sin and to acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ and find saving grace. You really are an awesome God, a God to take seriously and a God to love and adore. Help us to do all of those things, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us in our closing song.